This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the show and today I'm joined with Laurie Harada and Carrie Newton. Laurie is the Senior Manager and Carly is the Manager of Therapy Access of Terumo Blood and Cell Technologies, which if you don't know, we're talking sickle cell disease and ways that we can treat it. So Laurie, Carrie, eh. Laurie, Carly, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, we're glad to be here. So talk to us a bit about sickle cell first. So some people will have brief knowledge about it. Some may have no idea what it is. So if everyone wants to go first, who is the best person to answer what sickle cell actually is? Yeah, thanks, Michael. So sickle cell disease is the most common genetic blood disease in the U.S., There's probably about 100,000 people in the US living with sickle cell disease, and it affects mainly people with Middle Eastern or African heritage. And so in sickle cell disease, um, your red blood cells contain an abnormal um, hemoglobin called hemoglobin S. And so the presence of hemoglobin S in the body causes your red cells to change shape and become sticky and in almost like a um, sickle crested shape, um, which is why it's called sickle cell disease. And when they become sticky, it makes it really difficult for them to pass through smaller blood vessels. And as a result of this, the body's tissues and organs um, can be deprived of the oxygen they need to be able to function properly. So it's a very serious disease. Um, It's really important that with this disease that these patients understand their symptoms and how to keep themselves as healthy as possible because it can be really debilitating and really affect their quality of life. Am I right in saying that it's like an autoimmune thing? Like I've seen a couple of films related to it where they they've got to be really careful with their environment they can't go outside as much if it's a bad weather let's say because it can lower their immune system that's probably a bit of an over exaggeration given it's a film but what is it is it that way as well like when it affects the immune system yeah so it's a hereditary disease um and so it's a homozygous disease and so um both of the sickle cell patients parents need to have the trait to pass on the sickle cell disease. And really one of the biggest triggers uh, for um, sickle cell disease is when we talk about hemoglobin S, they get that sickle crested shape from being um, exposed to periods of hypoxia um, or not enough oxygen in the blood. And so what would usually happen with healthier uh, or with non-defective red cells is we can become a little hypoxic. They kind of shrink and change shape. But then when we reoxygenate, they plump back up and they're nice and um, um, plump to be able to go through capillaries. But when you have sickle cell disease, when you do get exposed to that hypoxia, they kind of shrink and then they don't bounce back up. And so that's where they start to become really sticky and hard and crested shape. So a big trigger um, for these patients is making sure that they stay really well hydrated, um, that, you know, being very careful. I mean, when they exercise or when they go into like higher parts of the world with altitude, I know I live in Denver, Colorado. And so it's a big thing when um, sickle cell patients travel to higher altitudes, they need to be very aware of that. 
making sure they get enough um, sleep and really taking care of themselves is probably the biggest um, way they can, you know, increase their quality of life. And on top of that, the main thing is, is connecting with a healthcare provider or physician, a nurse practitioner that can really work with them, you know, to offer them different solutions um, on how to manage their disease. So just a little history about sickle cell disease. It's believed it was developed um, a hereditary mutation due to the reaction of malaria. So it was a way for the body to protect itself from malaria and the cells would sickle so that the malaria would not infect the red blood cells. So it's not really an autoimmune disease. It is a hereditary disorder. It's interesting that you bring up that it was like a, a body's response to malaria as a way of combating it, preventing the effects of it, that sort of thing. It's making me think, actually, of the ways that we are helping each other health-wise may actually be contributing to something else further down the line. Is there anything else like that? Like, I'm, I'm wondering, like, if something daft like flu vaccines are causing us to all of a sudden be more susceptible to something else as a result and we know things mutate all the time and things change and it can be so hard to keep up with the whole thing but is this the only thing where we are trying to combat something and as a result we're more than susceptible to something else or we're causing something else by it's like we're never going to win it's what it feels like we're never never really going to get out of this thing are we and it's making me think is there more to that statement where okay we're battling malaria how do we do that let's do this and let's cause our red blood cells to do this and now all of a sudden we're probably going to be potentially worse in some ways than than if we'd had malaria and had the vaccines and brushed it off kind of thing like it, it seems like we're never really going to win this battle well in the early days of malaria there wasn't any medication for malaria and that's why the body mutated and made these changes so they could protect itself. It's a it's a, a, a protective mechanism in the human body. Now there are medicine that does treat malaria. So you don't see that mutation. But now that it is a genetic disorder, it can be passed on from one generation to the next. And that's why we call this a genetic disease, not a autoimmune disease. This is like classic epigenetic type things then where when things have become genetic, we kind of look back and think, oh, well, it was this, it was that. There wasn't a whole lot happening now. But because it's now in the genes, is there anything that you can actually do if you have it? Is there anything that's really helpful? Because that sounds like a, a lose-lose situation for those that, that really have this because it doesn't really help because we now have the medicine for it, but you're still feeling the the effects and long-term consequences are a mind-numbing concept for most people anyway but it just seems like it's so hard to wrap your head around it because now these people have a hard time and it's because of what we thought we were doing right I guess you could say in the past well so it, this is a life this is a lifelong disease and it can be controlled and that's where automated red blood cell exchange comes into play 
Now, Carly, I'm going to turn it back to you because you're a great, you give great explanations about the different options that sickle cell patients have with transfusion therapy. Thanks, Laurie. So when you look at managing sickle cell disease, um, there's, there's several options for these patients. And so a lot of patients are on a pharmacological option. Um, and so what what those options are actually look at increasing hemoglobin F, so a different type of hemoglobin in the body that actually has a higher affinity to oxygen, actually carries more oxygen around the body. So I would say about 80% of these sickle cell patients are managed on a pharmacy option. Um, interestingly enough, um, when babies are born with sickle cell disease, when we're born, we actually have hemoglobin F um, fetal hemoglobin in our bodies. And so um, babies in developed countries are quite often tested for sickle cell when they're born, but they um, are often not symptomatic until they're at least six months, one year old, when that hemoglobin F starts to decrease in the body. So just an interesting little fact there. So like I said, about 80% of the population in the US is treated with um, these sort of pharmacological options. But then you can be treated with transfusion therapy. And so the goal of transfusion therapy is to infuse healthy donor red cells, and that will increase oxygenation of the um, patient. And so when you look at that, you think red cell infusions. So um, there's different types of these transfusion therapies. Um, one of them is um, these patients will come in once or twice a month and just have one or two units of red cells infused. That's enough to keep um, the, to increase the oxygen in their body and manage the symptoms of their sickle cell disease. At Terumo Blood and Cell Technologies, one of our platforms offers a different type of transfusion therapy, and we call that red blood cell exchange or RBCX, if you want part of the acronym soup that we always talk about. And so with red blood cell exchange, one of the benefits of that is the patient's connected to a machine. Think of like a big dialysis machine where you've got the patient hooked up and you've got two lines with blood going into the machine and blood going out. Now it's very different to a dialysis machine, but what actually happens is that it allows the blood to separate into the red cell layer and the plasma layer via a centrifuge. And so by doing that, we can actually direct the red cells from the patient to a remove bag and simultaneously replace with red cells, right? So as they're pumping their blood in, we're removing their red cells and simultaneously um, infusing donor red cells. And so what that does is it increases oxygenation of the blood, but it does it in an iron neutral way. If you think about it, these patients going in for just the simple transfusion or just going in and having red cells topped up all the time, I mean, it's effective in the fact that it increases oxygenation, but because we're just adding to that um, patient's body, the red cells, over time, they can get an increase of iron in their body because the body's not going to um, expel that iron. And so what can happen or what will quite often happen if a patient's just coming in for regular transfusions, 
is they'll need is that they'll end up on what we call chelation therapy, which is a type of medication used to help the body remove iron from the body. And so what's really important with my role at Teruma Blood and Cell Technologies is helping sickle cell patients and physicians and nurse practitioners understand the different types of transfusion therapies that are available for sickle cell patients and um, make sure that they understand the different options to help manage their disease. And am I right in saying that the exchange therapy wouldn't require the iron balancing yeah. treatment as a result? Yeah. So, yeah, there's, um, there's lots of benefits to doing automated red blood cell exchange. One of um, the, the first things we talk about is the iron neutral therapy um, negates the need to be, um, be on these iron chelation and so these iron chelation um, therapy can have some, you know, not great side effects um, for patients. You know, it's expensive. They can have a lot of gastrointestinal issues, a lot of upset stomach. So it's hard for these patients sometimes to stay compliant um, with the chelation therapy. It's actually quicker than doing um, the simple transfusion. And so... Um, a simple transfusion usually takes, um, if they're having two units of blood um, infused, about half a day, where it takes about, a, on average, about 120 minutes to do a red cell exchange. Um, the other benefit for automated red cell exchange is you can actually um, space out or increase the length of treatment time. And that's because our machine allows you to accurately enter what sort of hemoglobin S levels you want these patients to finish the procedure at. So we talked about before simple transfusion. These patients usually come in once or twice a month. A patient on a chronic red cell exchange program might only need to come in every four to six weeks. So it increases the quality of the life. Um, it decreases um, some of the symptoms we have around those pain crisis um, and things like that. So there's a lot of benefit to automated red blood cell exchange, which is why we want to make sure that people understand the differences between these transfusion therapies and um, are able to work with their physician to make the best choices for their health. I'm kind of feeling like I'm getting like a full biology lesson right now but again it's more for those that don't have a clue what it is that we're talking about because you mentioned platelets before now fortunately I'm aware that that's one of the things that are in our blood and there are processes to split the blood into its component parts and but for someone listening that hasn't really got a clue what we're talking about what are some of the components of blood really and what are the ways that we can understand what our blood's made out of so Blood is really made of about four different components. One, the plasma portion of the blood, which is the liquid. That's where everything is suspended, is in the plasma. Within that plasma, we have the cellular components, which as Carly was talking about, red blood cells are the biggest component of that, the red blood cells. And then we have this kind of middle layer when we separate the blood by its specific gravity or by its weight. We have this middle layer that we call the buffy coat. And within that buffy coat are the platelets that you just talked about that help stop us from bleeding. They help clot the blood and the white blood cells, which help fight infection. 
So those are the four main components of blood. And what we can do in either blood donation or blood separation, we can selectively remove one of those types of blood components and use it as therapy. Or in red blood cell exchange, we can remove those defective red blood cells and replace them with healthy donor cells. When you donate blood at a blood center or blood drive, you could donate a unit of whole blood, which contains all those components, or you could donate by apheresis, which is to separate the blood into its different components and, sep and just donate either plasma or platelets or red blood cells. So there's lots of ways that you can donate blood and we really encourage blood donation because of the shortage that's going on right now. Do you think there's ever like a space where someone with tickle cell disease will get to a point where it's okay or are they always ice skating uphill so to speak where they're always having to keep doing it because they're fighting this they're always ice skating uphill. Yes, yeah. Michael, they're always ice skating. I love that term, ice skating yeah. uphill. Yes, they're they're always fighting against the development of their sickle cells, their sickled red blood cells. And therefore, automated red blood cell exchange allows them to have a normal, healthy um, life with normal healthy red cells from donors. And when you have those normal healthy cells, your oxygen carrying capacity has is greatly improved. Therefore, your quality of life is greatly improved. What happens now, to a normal one? What happens to like so if you have a red blood in transfusion, what happens to that to alter its function, alter its capacity for for oxygen to then kind of continue this well and I still have sickle cell and this new one that I have is now being transformed I guess into something that's not as as useful well the new blood isn't being transformed into sickle blood blood red blood cells are manufactured in our bone marrow and in sickle cell disease patients they are constantly manufacturing sickled red cells and those sickled red cells don't have a normal shelf life. They don't live as long as healthy donor cells. They only live, what, 20 days or so, right, Carly? About yep. 20 days, yep. where healthy donor cells live maybe 120 days. So those normal healthy donor cells will circulate in the body and do what they're supposed to be doing by carrying oxygen versus the sickled cells that the body is producing in a sickle cell disease patient, they get produced, then they die. And that's why they live in this anemic state most of the time, because their red blood cells don't live as long as our healthy donor cells. So, I think oh, it's a really yeah. nice point. Oh, sorry, Michael, oh, I was just okay. going to add to that, that if you think about it, you know, these hemoglobin S cells, we said they've got a lower affinity for oxygen anyway. So they already carry less oxygen. And to Laurie's point, like a shorter shelf life, it means that on top of the lower like oxygen carrying capacity, they've got a lot less of them, which just exacerbates all of these um, symptoms of the hypoxia, which causes a lot of these 
these patients a lot of their pain crisis um and so it's just this I really like that terminology I'm going to take that move forward with it ice skating up the mountain Um, (laughs) yeah ice skating uphill (laughs) yeah it's really important that they understand their bodies and these people are incredibly in tune with their bodies you know speaking to a patient advocate group yesterday in California and there was a lady from Florida that was up in San Diego and before she got on the plane she said I don't feel right I don't feel like I should go up in the airplane and fly back with my sickle cell disease so she went into the hospital um, and said I need um, some transfusion therapy I need a red blood cell exchange before I travel so these people um, if they can get the right education and get the right healthcare professionals around them, lead very healthy lives and still travel and see the world and have children. Um, but it's just incredibly important that they become aware of the therapies they can have to remain healthy. And you'll just see how in tune they are with their bodies. You know, they'll go into hospitals and um, let physicians or nurses know exactly what's going on, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, the the whole self-awareness thing and being in tune was something that really fascinates me because I'm actually I'm actually diabetic. So when when I have those similar bouts of it, you have to be very in tune with what your own symptoms are. Um, and it could be different from everybody. So what are some of the symptoms that people can experience? I wouldn't never encourage anyone to self-diagnose this, but for those that are maybe curious as to, okay, those that have the diagnosis what do they experience and the trick with being diabetic is the symptoms are very similar for high blood as they are for low blood which makes things very confusing how is it for sickle cell disease as well in terms of like what do people experience how do you can tell one aspect from another because having the distinctions also important for how you would go about treating it um what can people experience The number number one symptom that sickle cell patients have is pain. They develop pain. And the reason why is these sickle cells get caught in the capillary beds and they block the oxygen exchange and they deprive the muscles of oxygen. And when you deprive muscles of oxygen, you have pain these sickle cell patients come into the emergency room in pain crisis and they can be misdiagnosed. And the one good thing about red blood cell exchange is we can get rid of those sickle cells and help increase their oxygen capacity so that their pain crisis does go away. And some more severe symptoms. So pain is the most common, but some more severe symptoms are stroke, because these small little red blood cells are blocking the blood flow to the brain and they can have stroke, which can lead to all kinds of um, bad situations. I don't know if you've ever had a, a family member have a stroke. It's a long recovery process to recover from a hypoxic stroke in your brain. They also can have chest syndrome, which is like a heart attack because these sickle cells are blocking the capillary beds. It's all related to lack of oxygen to vital organs and muscles. It it almost kind of makes me think that 
the the sickle cell aspect is like the behind the scenes potentially but what we actually experience can almost be worse in a way yeah like, yes. i'm picturing like faintings and strokes and lack of energy therefore a lack of motivation and willingness but also ability to actually do anything about it i'm picturing okay well maybe if they exercise they feel better they can enhance their body's ability to latch onto oxygen maybe it'll do something but then i'm thinking well if they're lacking energy they can't do the thing that i'm picturing that they would need to do because they've just not got the energy they're too tired to go for a run they might struggle to get up the stairs and it can be so hard to battle it when you're battling with the the baseline thing is energy and ability to actually change things well if you think about living in a chronic anemic state you have no energy because you don't have enough red blood cells to carry oxygen to your vital organs therefore you're tired all the time. You don't have energy to walk up the stairs because you're anemic and they live in a chronic anemic estate, state compared to us three sitting here on this podcast who have normal healthy red cells and lots of them. Yeah. And it's just these patients need to be so meticulous with every single life decision they make, Michael. I know we talked about it's really important they stay hydrated and get lots of sleep and that they stay on their chronic disease management, which is really hard, you know, especially, you know, we see a lot of these patients that um, really struggle with that transition from the pediatric hospitals to the adult hospitals, just, you know, starting college or starting jobs and getting more social, um, you know, it's just everything they do when they plan a holiday, they have to plan their sickle cell around that. If they want to start a family, you know, um, the pain crisis we talked about can um, will often increase in pregnancy because you've got that viscosity of the blood. Every single thing they do, they need to sort of think about and plan. And so that is the best I guess, defense they've got is having a really good healthcare team that are well educated around all of their options to manage these, um, these symptoms. And really what I love about our job is when you go and see these patients and they talk about their sickle cell journey. I mean, these people, um, they're called, um, there's a patient group and they call them sickle cell warriors and they are, they are just the most phenomenally, um, you know, I guess, resilient and inspiring people, the way they deal with their disease and what what many of them manage to go and live exceptional lives. So I think, you know, while there are no cures, you know, it's really inspirational to work with these patients and see how they get over that adversity and and continue to have a great quality of life. You ever find that the a kind of person that would undergo the treatment, that undergo the domino effect, they'd start that process of getting better and then they start doing other things to look after themselves and now all of a sudden they are just like you or I, just kind of going about whatever it is that they want. And the amount of times people will start off from really struggling to then being able to do things that they would never have, have dreamt of doing. And it all starts with that that one domino effect of, okay, well, once I have more energy, it's then about where I put that energy and what I actually do with it. Yeah, it's, I, it's I think inspirational. The, 
I think the key is that they have to understand where that domino effect occurs and to stay ahead of it. Because if they can stay ahead of their pain crisis or their symptoms and maintain a healthy, normal life, it can be deceiving because then they think they're normal. And then all of a sudden something happens and they're back into that chronic state again. So these sickle patients are very in tuned to their lifestyle and their body. So they understand what is happening and they try to prevent that. Do you ever find that they can be a bit not sensitive in the, the worst sense, but let's say they they try something on day one, maybe they go for a walk or they go for a run and the body can respond quite abruptly, I guess you could say, to something like that. Maybe they don't recover as quickly as they thought or something similar to, to that effect. It must be so hard to to even get a handle on making progress with it if let's say you go for a walk and all of a sudden you need to have a lie down because you overexerted yourself and as you said they start to think that they're normal when they start to make progress in this it's like a a knife with two edges whereby they think they're doing okay and they go oh well actually i'm not and you get brought back to reality again a little bit it's like living with any chronic disease you you said you had diabetes. That's a chronic disease that you have to live with. And you understand what that process is living with diabetes. Sickle cell patients are the same way. They need to understand what it's like to live with this disease and to change their lifestyle so that they can have a normal life living with a disease. It makes me think, of the lifestyle choices but then you have the mental battle as well you know the the idea of undergoing the treatment plan can actually cause some potential worse things happen if you start to think that you're normal and you start to think that you're like everybody else and you see your friends doing this that and the other thing and you're like oh well I'm feeling really good so I'll I'll go and do that Instead of saying, no, hang on, but you want like week two, like take it steady, maybe do half and see how you get on. Sometimes you, like, you can't really understand fully what having to back off, I guess you could say. You've yeah. got to back off. You can't fully commit to it because you'll be suffering for a week or, or whatever it is, whatever the whatever the actual reality is for, for these people with sickle cell, they've got to put themselves in this state of no matter what, I still got to just monitor what I'm doing and gradually right. get better. Yeah. And um, it's, it's something that I can only imagine. I've got a bit of experience, but I mean, it's very different when you can go for a walk outside and you need a week off because it was cold or your body got hit by whatever it is, or, well, maybe you walked uphill too much and your body's fighting the, the damage of that because yeah. there's, you know, there's, there's oxidative stress and all those things that your body still has to struggle with, whether you're normal or not. And I, I think it's so hard to wrestle with that to yeah. the point where we need to be able to encourage people with this condition to still push themselves and to still work through it and still keep pushing through because the benefits out always outweigh the the negatives 
is there anything that you can share for people with this condition that can help them do that? Because I could share a couple of things, but I mean, it, it's not the same. Uh, what, what, what can these people do? Yeah, and I think it goes back to, Michael, I talked about before, probably the biggest high-risk stage for these patients is when they transition out of um, pediatric care and go to adult care. And to your point, you know, their big life changes around that time of your life. You're either going off to college and hanging out with your new college friends. You're starting a new job and working different hours, different diets. You know, you don't have so much parental supervision. And so you start making these life choices, right? So you, you're going out like, you know, then you can start to drink alcohol when you're 21. You know, there's all these different life choices. And you're like, oh, my friends can go and do it. Why can't I? And so I feel like around that time unfortunately there's a couple of things I want to talk to about that unfortunately around this time on this sort of um, seminal sort of moments of people's life is where we lose some sickle cell patients because the pediatric hospitals are managing their um, disease and then they don't either maybe feel comfortable going to a new hospital or the adult hospital won't keep bringing them reminding of them their appointments right or their parents won't bring them in so you know that's one thing there's a lot of great um, physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners out there that are really working on sort of bridging um, you know that time of these patients life and they will within these bridging programs talk about you know you're going to be faced with different life choices and you know how you manage that right so I think in the US there's some great pilot programs that help manage that and really allow these patients to think I can lead a great you know productive inspirational life I just need to learn my body and manage my symptoms and realize there are limitations that I need to put in place to stay healthy so I think that's probably the first thing to comment is that, you know, there are a lot of healthcare professionals that are really managing this. And then I think once you kind of get through that initial stage, like I said before, these patients know their body so well, you know, like I said the other day that the lady who didn't want to get on the plane because she just didn't feel quite right. And what I think we needed to do to support that as a healthcare community is really educate the healthcare community around sickle cell and the symptoms. I think one of the most disheartening thing is that as people are trying different things and maybe having exacerbations of this disease, the last thing we want is for them to go into a hospital and um, be in this excruciating pain because they've had an exacerbation and they get told that it's, um, it's not as bad, the pain's not as bad and they won't get the adequate pain relief. And so I think as we encourage these patients, because you can travel, you can have families, you, you know, you can have, lead great, healthy lives, but it's really important we help them and support the healthcare professionals that are really managing and helping them understand, you know, that transition where a lot of these life decisions are made and it's going to change. And the second thing is continuing to educate the healthcare community that when they do come you know, to hospitals for help, um, that, you know, they're not just labelled as um, opioid chasing people that, you know, they're treated adequately as well. Because if you continue to go to hospitals and get told that, you end up not going into hospital and just managing with your pain every day. Yeah, it must be so confusing for people as well, because if you're anything like 
some of the people that that I know with chronic health conditions and diseases and things, when you go from being a child to being an adult, very often they just rip the the bandaid off and they're like, right away you go. And I think a part of that problem anyway is they've never had to learn the skill of being disciplined with it, being self-responsible, which if you've got a a handful of things, it's hard enough, you know, if you don't have anything else that you need to do daily or hourly or every time you go on a flight, you need a blood transfusion first. Most people don't need that. So they haven't got to think about that. They haven't got to reverse engineer that whole process. Okay, well, when do I need to book it to be able to get it before I go away? Very straightforward stuff. It's called being organized. But if you've never had to, it's very hard to build that skill and to build that ability. And very often you see it, you see like um like kids that are making their own breakfast and doing their own clothes and they're like six years old and they get themselves ready for school. And you know, I, I'm quite passionate about the fact that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be able to teach your kids as early as they're able to do little things themselves and to do little things because I can't tell you how many times I wish I was taught things like that sooner because when you've got to do it yourself you've not got the years of doing it to be good at it it takes me forever to do something that would take somebody else half the time because they've got the years of experience of building it up and getting good at it and being organized because you've always had to it's like not brushing your teeth for 30 years and suddenly picking up a toothbrush and you think, oh, I've got to do this and work my toothbrush this way and get right to the back over here. And if you've been doing it for 20 years prior, you just do it. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to wonder when to set your alarm to find the time to do it before you eat your breakfast, that sort of thing. There's things that we don't necessarily think of because we're so good at it that people that go their entire childhood of not needing to be organized and not needing to plan anything to then be given this clearly very life effort like life-changing condition that they've never had to manage themselves now they've got to do all of it and it's not just conditions it's not just treatments it's not just frequent hospital visits it's a lifestyle change and I'd, I'd imagine if you've got high iron, you want to change your diet compared to if you've got low iron and you just think it never ends. Your diet's changing every couple of days because your levels in the blood fluctuate. I'm imagining it's a bigger shift when you've got sickle cell maybe and you've got to do the whole thing while, okay, well, maybe you've then got to think about, do I need a job when I'm 16 or or can I wait? I've got bigger problems. I might not be able to go for a walk today. Like, I can't think about what job I'm going to get if I can't go for a walk today, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. So you start having to pick your battles and decide what wars to win and what wars to lose and, and all of those things. And it's such a a mess, for want of a better expression. <laughs> but you, you've got to just find find anything that you can do regularly that makes a difference, that really does shift the game. Because otherwise, it's too complicated. Life's complicated enough without this thrown in as well. Yeah. So what can move the needle aside from just outright blood transfusions and see you in a couple of months kind of thing. 
what can make the big difference when it comes to having sickle cell, managing it, the possibility of actually getting a handle on this thing that we've now called ice skating uphill? What can we do? What makes the biggest difference? I think there's a lot of patient advocate groups out there that really support these patients and help them learn how to manage their disease. Teenage years are challenging for even normal, healthy people. And if you have a chronic disease and you're transitioning from mom and dad taking care of you to now you taking care of yourself, there's a lot to learn. And there's some great, as I said, advocacy groups for these patients, great healthcare professionals, nurse practitioners, physicians that will coach these people along so that they learn and it becomes a habit to live that way. Because that's the whole point is, is you do something and then it becomes ingrained in you and you do it as a habit over and over again. And then you live a normal, healthy life. Coming in the future, there are gene therapies that are curing people of sickle cell disease. And that's the exciting future of this disease is there may be a chance that it could be cured. The FDA hasn't approved it yet, but stay tuned. I'm sure it'll be coming soon. I was going to ask about what was happening because gene therapy isn't a particularly new area. It's not ancient either, but it's not brand new. There are other conditions that have access to gene therapy. And when you mentioned it was a, now it's now a genetic thing that's passed on, it did make me think of gene therapy and altering the genes and, and those kinds of things. Is there a reason why it's not FDA approved yet? Is there any, is it, is it too new? Like, is this like a, a hundredth condition in a long line of diseases that they've had to try with this first? I mean, what's the process going to be like? I think the key word is yet. It's not approved yet. It's in the process of getting approved because in any sort of new therapy, it takes years of clinical trials and studying and testing to make sure that it's safe and efficacious. So it's effective. And there are a few companies out there now that have done their clinical trials and have great results and have submitted to the FDA for this gene therapy. So stay tuned. It, it will be coming soon to treat sickle patients with genetic manipulation to cure their disease. I bet that could be a, a crazy time for people when they've gone from having all of these. I mean, how big of a difference do you think it would? Do you think it would actually cure it whereby, I don't know, a couple of months of treatment and they go from having sickle cell to being normal? What of a better yes. expression is it? Is it is it that yes, big of a it dramatic is change? That it is that big of a change. There are patients that have participated in these clinical trials that have been disease free for three to five years. So it's it is that big of a dramatic change. Wow. I mean, I would that be you guys out of a job then? Like, is, is that is that it? Like, it, <laughs> when it comes out, we just sat there over around the the oval table thinking. There's a lot of other things we do besides helping sickle cell patients and red blood cell exchange is just one aspect of the device that we have, this medical device that separates blood. 
And the other aspect is therapeutic plasma exchange, which is just the opposite of red blood cell exchange. So they're taking red blood cells out, we take the plasma out. And there are a lot more diseases that are treated with therapeutic plasma exchange than with red blood cell exchange. So I don't think we'll ever be out of a job. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I I imagine there'd be vampires that would bite your hand off for uh, <laughs> the plasma exchange. Yeah, you know, and you know, the, fortunately, the the company we work for, Michael Terumo Blood and Cell Technologies, we've got different um, products, services, and software that helps customers treat a huge amount of um, diseases with both blood and cells. So you know, we've also got. Um, systems out there that can expand cells, um, can elutriate cells to help with, you know, these um, these clinical trials and the um, the the scientists and physicians working on these cures. And so we we honestly believe that you know their blood and cells can do more tomorrow for patients than they can do today. So I guess, you know, with that innovative sort of foresight as a company and that true belief, you know, I, I don't think we'll ever be out of a job. And, and our core business is really to collect blood too. Yeah. So there's always a need for blood and blood products to treat patients. And that's part of our core business is to collect blood and to separate blood into its components. What about for the average person who spent better part of 45 minutes talking about sickle cell? Because I know that's a big part of the work that you're doing and why I wanted to have a conversation today. But what about like average people? I don't like using that word, but what about people that don't have specific conditions and diseases? What kind of performance enhancing benefits could altering the composition of people's blood enhancing what the red blood cells can do. Do you ever have that kind of work happen as well? Or someone will say, look, I just want to get better at doing, you know, oxygen exchange, blood brain barrier, that sort of thing. Have you ever had that? I think what you're getting at is things that are potentially illegal, like blood doping, where they give or they receive blood transfusions when they don't need blood transfusions. And that increases their oxygen carrying capacity in their bloodstream. Therefore, they can perform um, athletic activities better when you have higher red blood cell counts. I, I, is that what you're going for? I think so, but then you've got people that live in an altitude that may struggle when they come down and, and vice versa. People train at altitude to better their performance. That's it, exactly it, right. It, people do train level. at altitude. Uh, in fact, the um, National Olympic Training Center is in Colorado Springs, which is at 7,000 feet. And I, when I moved to Colorado from Chicago, my red blood cell level was lower. It was more around the lower range. Now that I've lived here for 13 years, my red blood cells are much higher because I live at altitude. And what that means when I go to sea level is I have better oxygen carrying capacity. So people do train at elevation so that the body naturally produces more red blood cells 
so that they can compensate for that low oxygen environment that they're living in. I'd be curious about what your experience has been since the the increase, because lots of people talk about it. Some people maybe have a test or two to confirm it. And what are the benefits have been like for you? What's been your personal experience of enhancing how your your blood handles oxygen? Well, I've been able to donate blood more often <laughs> because my red blood cells are higher. When I mm. lived at sea level, I would be turned away because I was borderline anemic. And now that I'm living at elevation, my red blood cells are a lot more and I'm able to donate blood more and I can help more people by donating blood. So there's no you, like yeah. advanced like concentration. You're not as fatigued as much that you suddenly take up running marathons in your sleep or anything no. like that. No, I never did that anyway. I never ran marathons. <laughs> I don't like to run. I don't like to sweat. No, no. <laughs> but let me tell you, Michael, I live in Denver and it's not as high of attitude as Laurie. And I went back to Australia for two months earlier this year and I came back and, oh, my goodness, just walking around the supermarket, you have to catch your breath. You really notice it when you've been living in attitude. You go out for an extended period of time you really notice it when you come back. I feel like you notice it more when you come back than just like when you get to the point where you're living with it and your body's adjusted and you've got more red cells. I think whenever anyone comes to visit me, I'm like, drink lots of water, you know. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it isn't living at altitude makes a big difference. It's moving away and then going back. Mm -hmm. So you have, you have this like acclimation phase that, happens quite quickly then if you go from altitude to sea level things change back to normal quite quickly well it takes a, a couple of months it's not like it happens in a week but it does take a couple of months and if you if you look at high altitude climbers like people who climb mount everest they'll go and live at base camp for several weeks before they try to ascend so that they their body does become acclimated to that high altitude so it sounds like it's a short-term effect then in terms of like when the blood cell count increases, there's a little bit of a difference, but you're not really noticing it. Like I, I do picture like, you know, not doing much at sea level and you live up there for a bit and then you come back down and all of a sudden it's ultra marathons galore. With... <laughs> no, it's not. It doesn't work that way. No. <laughs> well Laurie and, and Carly it's been amazing I really enjoyed having you on I feel so much smarter now as a result of, of having this conversation so for those that want to learn more about you the work that you're doing how can people find out more go to our website it's yeah. terumo t-e-r-u-m-o b-c-t dot com Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Those that are listening, feel free to subscribe, share the show, tell others, and also leave a review wherever you are listening in to your podcasts. Carly, Laurie, it's been fantastic, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Michael. Michael.